Good evening, everybody. Good to see all of you here. Uh, let's uh, open up with a word of prayer tonight. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you again for this opportunity that we can continue to study uh, this book. Uh, we ask that you would uh, be with us and bless our time together this evening. Uh, give us wisdom by your spirit that we may grow in our uh, personal lives and walk with you. And uh, also bless our fellowship this evening as well. That would bring uh, that would be refreshing to us and bring glory to you. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're moving into letters 15 and 16. So we're reaching the, the halfway part of the, of the book. Uh, and our two letters this evening, the main topics we'll be considering. Uh, in letter 15, uh, we'll be talking about living in the future. And then in letter 16, we'll be... Uh, dealing with the topic of church hopping or uh, uh, becoming a connoisseur of churches, as Lewis puts it. Uh, as we uh, look at letter 15, it begins uh, contextually just that there's a, a little bit of a, a lull that's going on in World War II at that point. Um, I'm not completely sure uh, what uh, historical event, if, uh, if Lewis is uh, talking about a historical event, an actual uh, lull in the war. Perhaps he's referencing some kind of um, break in air raids or something like that. I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, for the purpose of this book, this uh, or for this story, that leads into then a, a discussion about, well, uh, the patient's anxieties are diminishing a little bit, you know, the as the war is becoming a little bit less on the front of the mind. Um, what should you do to try to uh, attack him spiritually with this uh, this big external threat kind of diminishing, at least temporarily. Uh, and he talks about how tortured fear and stupid confidence are both desirable states of mind. And to induce that, that's what then leads into this discussion uh, about time, uh, particularly considerations of the past, present, uh, future, and for screw tape, the desire for humans to be living in the future. But before we get to that part, uh, he talks a little bit about uh, what it is that God desires of us in regards to how we live uh, in time. And uh, Lewis talks about how God wants us to be concerned with two main things. First is eternity, and the second is to be living in the present. Uh, living in eternity is the idea of uh, being concerned about God uh, or, the, or the things of God. This is uh, uh, us constantly being reminded that uh, this world is not all there is for us. It's much more than this, but we were created for God to have relationship with God. Uh, and that's uh, what God has oriented us to. He has oriented us towards that blessedness of, of living and being with him. And we look forward to a day where we will live eternally um, for the rest of, well, there won't be time anymore. It'll just, it's just the beingness afterwards, just living uh, forever. And so there's that aspect, and in our lives, we are to, to have an orientation towards that, to be thinking about eternity, to be concerned about eternity, which necessarily means being concerned about God and the things of God. That's what we are created for. Second thing that God's concerned about, though, is not just us thinking about eternity or living for eternity, but it's also the idea of living in the present, living in the now. Uh, and part of what this means is that uh, in our lives— um, that's the part that we can control. The, it's the now part. We can't change the past. We can't even really change the future. I mean, that's a big unknown to us. We'll talk about that in a moment. 
But what we were given is the, is the present, the here, the now, what we're doing at this moment. Uh, he uses the, the language that God wants us to be concerned with the present, meaning either meditating on our eternal union with or separation from God, so thinking about our relationship with him, uh, either, the, either the fact that it's in a good state or in a bad state, uh, to be thinking about God himself in the present, or else obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, giving thanks for the present pleasure. You know, the idea is whatever condition or state we're in, whether we're actively thinking about God in that moment, whether we're um, thinking about how we're supposed to be living in the moment, you know, duties that we're supposed to do, what our conscience is telling us we're supposed to do, whether it's bearing patiently by God's grace, the crosses and sufferings we have at this present moment, receiving the grace he's given us in this present moment, or even just giving thanksgiving for the, the wonderful gifts and pleasures and joys he's given us in this present moment. You know, that's what's real for us right now, is what's going on right now. And so for the, for, as human beings, um, part of living for that present is living now in this moment in the appropriate way for God's glory, whatever condition it is that he has us in right now. And that's what God desires of us, to be constantly living with that idea of eternity before us, that living for him, and then that necessarily then affecting the present, that in this moment, whether it's in suffering, whether it's in times of joy and pleasure, whether it's that active uh, meditation on him, that's what we need to be, to be focused on. That's how God uh, wants us to be living. In contrast to that, though, screw tape wants us to live either in the past or in the future. Now, Lewis doesn't spend a lot of time talking about living in the past. And part of the reason for that is he argues that living in the past isn't as bad as living in the future. Now, living in the past can definitely be destructive. And I think we could probably think of examples of people who are are stuck living in the past, whether it's um, longing for the things of the past or regretting things in the past. I mean, those, are, those are real things that can, uh, can damage us and how we live now. Uh, but Lewis makes the point that there's something that's more real about those things because those things actually happened. You know, you, you can think about real good things that happened in the past, and that can have uh, a certain effect that can... You know, there's a sense that by dwelling on the past, you can even shock yourself out of living in the past when you start to realize what's going on in the present. Uh, but there's something more real about that than when you just look at the future, and the, the future is this big, it's a, it's a big nebulous thing. You know, we, we could have hopes and plans and dreams and all that, but we don't know that they're going to happen. Anything can happen in the future. I mean, you know, we could all be dead tomorrow. You know, we could, anything could happen. And all of our plans and dreams and everything that we're fixated on could just be completely gone. And so Screwtape's desire is not for, living in the past can be a good thing from their perspective to get a human to live in the past. But it's even better if you can get them to focus on this future, this, this nebulous future that's out there. Um which they don't know what's going to happen. He even puts it this way, the future is, of all things, the thing least like eternity. It is the most completely temporal part of time. For the past is frozen and no longer flows, and the present is all lit up with eternal rays. 
But the future is this thing that, from our perspective, we just don't know anything about because it's still future to us. It's still out there. And so Screwtape wants us to focus on living in the future. Now, he does talk a little bit about there is a certain sense that God uh, doesn't want us to just ignore the future. There is a proper way that we're supposed to think about the future, and especially in that idea of we're supposed to plan for the future. Um, you know, the wise man is the one who considers the cost of building a building before he goes out and actually builds it. You know, we are supposed to be wise. We are supposed to consider the future. Uh, and he even uses the example of um, we're supposed to uh, plan acts of justice or charity or, or things like that, which will probably be their duty tomorrow. And so there's this idea that as we, we plan for the future, we're planning for what's going to become our present. That's not a, that's not a bad thing. Um, but what God does not want is he doesn't want our, our hearts and our treasures to be completely placed on what the future is going to hold. You know, having your heart set on, you know, man, when, uh, you know, when uh, I'm so much richer or, you know, things are going to be so much better or, you know, when this happens or when that happens and you've got no guarantee if that's going to happen or this is going to happen or, or whatever. You just don't know. And so it do, it's, not, um, it's not that God wants us to just be ambivalent or not think about the future or anything like that, but we need, again, this is that idea of priorities. We need to have it in the, the right place. Where we do not give the, our hearts to the future. We do not place our treasure in it. But through tape's desire in the end, for living in the future looks like this. He wants men to be hag-ridden by the future haunted by visions of an imminent heaven or hell upon earth. And that's the idea of, you know, you've, you've got this desire that the future is going to be this incredible, glorious heaven here on earth, or you're just fully terrified that it's going to be as terrible as it could possibly be, a living hell here on earth. He wants you to have just, uh, he wants you to have one of those extremes, either an incredible confidence of what the, of what the future is going to be for you, or an incredible dread of what the future is going to be for you. Because the one, the dread, is going to lead, lead you to living in a perpetual state of just chaos and angst and worry and, 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 and fear. The overconfidence is going to lead you to living in a, in a world of dashed hopes and dreams because this grandiose idea of the future most often is not going to happen. And so be, he wants you to, to be filled with those ideas, haunted visions of an imminent heaven or a hell upon earth. And what that leads to then is because you're so focused on that, your heart is, is so uh, either desiring this great thing to come, about, come to pass or you're so fearful of this terrible thing coming to pass, you are then ready to break God's commands if the present, in the present. If by so doing, we make, uh, we make the person think that they can attain the one or avert the other. We want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, never honest, nor kind, nor happy now, but always using as mere fuel wherewith to heap the altar of the future, every real gift which is offered them in the present. It's the idea. You, some, you, you can become so consumed about either this, this vision of the future that you want to happen or this fear of the future that you don't want to happen, uh, that you then sacrifice 
all the gifts that God gives you here because you're so trying to, to fight against what the future can hold. That's what Screwtape wants us to be focused on, living in the future. And so this means in the end, we already talked a little bit about what it is that God, how God wants us to live, to live uh, with the idea of eternity and also to, to live in the present. Uh, Lewis spends a little bit of time talking about, well, what does that mean to live in the present? Because uh, sometimes that can, you know, that can be used in a, in a wrong way. Uh, this can be used in the sense of um, what we talked about already, kind of having a, a false hope regarding the future. And so you just live in the, the present almost in a, in a complacent way. Um, because, you know, the future doesn't really bother you or worry you. Um, and that's not necessarily a, a the right idea. But he brings this out uh, towards, the, uh, towards the end of the letter when he talks about this is what it means to live in the present in a godly way. If, on the other hand, he is aware that horrors may be in store for him and is praying for the virtues wherewith to meet them, and meanwhile concerning himself with the present, because there and there alone all duty, all grace, all knowledge, and all pleasure dwell, his state is very undesirable and should be attacked at once. That's the idea of you've got a person who recognizes, yeah, there may be bad things that come in the future. But you pray for the grace of God to, to give you the strength, to give you the virtue to meet those when those times come. But your concern then is to, to live in the present. You could be concerned about what your duty is in the present, the grace of God that he's given you in the present, the, the knowledge, the, the pleasure, the, the joys that he's given you in your present state, and to not just let those slip you by. That's what it means to, to live in the present. That's what, as Christians, we should uh, be striving for. It's this realistic trusting in God, focusing on what he has given us here, what's before us now, not worrying and fretting about what might come and not having uh, you know, all these hopes and dreams that may end up getting broken in the future as well. So that's, uh, that's letter 15. Are there any um, comments, thoughts, questions about what we've talked about so far? Yeah, Randy. When you're talking about here and now, what made me think of well, since Bro talks about the secular world and the Christian world. In the secular world, they live for the here and the now. And there is um, there is nothing else, you know. Tomorrow right. and die. So let's look it up today. And he was and his terminology was, I don't know if it's from him or he got some else. For the Christian, um living here in the now, but the now makes a significance for all eternity. Yeah. Whereas the secular world, it's just here and now, and that's it. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. Sproul does. Uh, Sproul does talk about that idea of uh, the the secular world lives in the here and now for the pleasure of today, um, and uh, and the Christian lives in the present, but with present uh, oriented towards eternity. And I think that's the the first part of what Lewis was talking about. We live. Uh, in eternity in the present. Those are the things that God has us focus on. He has an interesting section. I didn't really talk about this, but um, where he talks about how, how all the vices, uh, well, there's a couple things. He talks about schemes of thought 
um, such as creative evolution, scientific humanism, communism, which fix men's affections on the future. Um, the idea being that all of those are, are oriented towards achieving a goal, a utopia, or some kind of you know, betterment of society. And then he goes on to talk about, hence nearly all virtues are, are, sorry, not virtues, all vices are rooted in the future. So gratitude looks to the past, love looks to the present, but fear, avarice, lust, and ambition look ahead. And, uh, and there's this idea here that, the, you know, the pursuit of sin uh, in the here and now is still future-oriented in the sense, not, not in the sense that it's thinking about eternity. I think that's the sense that, uh, that Sproul was using it. And, you know, they're not thinking about hell or heaven or dying or anything like that. that. You know, their presence is divorced from eternity. But that present pleasure that they're pursuing is the idea of, of trying to reach something in front of them. They're, they're chasing after something. That's, they, they think through these sins and vices, they can achieve it, but they don't. And it's constantly always there in, in front of them. And I, I think that's the idea that Lewis is getting with this future orientation. Uh, and so I, I think in the end, they're, they're using different language, but I think Sproul and Lewis are, are essentially saying the same thing, if that makes sense. Any other uh, thoughts, comments, or questions on this letter? Yes, Lynn. Yeah. <laughs> Causing trouble here. Yeah. No, it, it's definitely true. We do live, especially in a, in a culture and society of fear. And, I mean, and part of that's everything in our culture is oriented towards uh, fostering that. I mean, you just think about the nightly news. It's created to stir up fear um, because that will keep you watching and that will keep your attention and all those things. And so you're exactly right. There's a, there's a lot in our culture that's just it's the way our culture is designed is to live like that. Um, as Christians, that's not what we're we're called to be. Yeah. Sure. Yes. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, God is, uh, that it, living in the present is that living by faith. The grace that God gives us, the joys that he gives us, the sufferings that he gives us. And still being able to bear with that, with the grace that he provides. I mean, that's just a simple description of what the Christian life is like. Yeah, Exactly. All right, let's move on to letter 16. So letter 16 is addressing the topic of, um, of church attendance. 
And in particular, it's this idea that, okay, so this patient is he's going to go to church. You can't prevent him from going to church. But how can we make it that, uh, uh, how can you exploit that to try to, to harm him spiritually? And the solution is to make him a taster of churches, a connoisseur of churches, one who is, is constantly floating about trying to find the church that just, that suits him perfectly. And if the church doesn't start to suit him, well, send him off somewhere else. Um, it begins with that you know, part of the way you, you do this is you de-emphasize the aspect of the church as a unity and especially emphasize the idea of the church as a club. Um, this is especially something that's common today, you know, in America, um, you know, People have used the language of like, you know, a smorgasbord or, you know, a, a buffet. You can just, you know, go and you, you just pick what church suits you in the end. Um, that's not how God has designed the church. Uh, the church is a, is a body and there's a, a unity. Uh, you have this language that he uses that being a, a unity of place and not of likings. It brings people of different classes and psychology together in the kind of unity the enemy desires. You know, especially in older times when you weren't able to travel as well, the reality is you might only have one church. You didn't have the option to go and try that one or this one or the other one. You had your local church, and that that forced a unity that's actually really important. I mean, when you you think about how the, the Bible describes the church, and we're described as a body with like all these different parts and gifts, and you know, there's a lot of diversity. I mean, when you think about uh, what a healthy church looks like, it's going to have a lot of different kinds of people. You're going to have different um, social backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, uh, skill sets. You're going to have blue-collar people. You're going to have white-collar people. And those aren't bad things. That's actually a good thing to have all those different parts joined together because we're united around something that's not Social, we're reunited together in Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus Christ, it, he bridges all, I mean, not, he doesn't just bridge. Galatians talks about, you know, he breaks down. He breaks down all the barriers between people. All the kinds of barriers that as human beings, we are so quick to, to, to put up between different people. Jesus smashes them all down. And in the church, you have all these things that are, that are brought together. And, you know, we're not going to be, it's okay that we're not united in all those other things. It's okay that we're different. It's okay that we've got different family backgrounds or different work backgrounds or things like that because we're united together by something so much better and stronger, Jesus Christ. But especially in, a, in America, we can be so, uh, we're, we're so steeped in this idea of um, the church is about what makes us feel comfortable. And so it becomes more about what we like, and it becomes more of a club about where we kind of fit in with other people as opposed to being the body of Christ. And, uh, and that can be a, a dangerous thing. You know, it's very easy. Uh, let, me put, let me put it this way. It's very easy that when things get uncomfortable in the church, our response is, well, I'm just going to go somewhere else. It's not a biblical response. A biblical response is to try to work through that uncomfortable thing that you have. To, you know, to go to your brother. Love bears all things. Love 
uh, forgives all things. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. All those things we see in, in 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not insist on its own way. That, is a, that would be that biblical way. To, you know, how do you handle the, the difficulties, the offenses, and things that happen in the church? You try to learn to address it charitably, to forgive each other, humility, all those things. But it's a lot easier to just go somewhere else. That's not a, a, a God-glorifying response. So uh, Screw Tape goes on to talk about, you know, that's one of the first things you want to do. Get him to think about it as a club, something where he wants to go and fit in, and it's, you know, he wants it to be people just like him, as opposed to this idea of unity. The second thing to, uh, to try to influence him in is this. In the search for a suitable church, make the man a critic, where the enemy, God, wants him to be a pupil. Now, this does not mean that there aren't things that need to be critiqued in churches. And in fact, just to to go back to the previous point, I'm not saying that there are no good reasons to ever leave a church. Sometimes that has to happen. I want to be be clear about that. But we want to make sure that we do it in the right way. Same with this. This, uh, I am not saying in any way that uh, churches and pastors and leaders don't sometimes need to be critiqued. Sometimes they do. But it's a very different thing, our attitude for how we come to the church and what we're looking for and what we're expecting. Uh, a proper way is to be critical in the sense of rejecting what is false or unhelpful. Um, and in addition to that, uh, while you may be willing to critique what and reject what is false and unhelpful, You also need to be willing to be wholly uncritical in the sense that it does not appraise, which means it does not waste time in thinking about what it rejects, but lays itself open in uncommenting, humble receptivity to any nourishment that is going. Uh, Just an example in my own life, there have been been times when I've heard, there's a a particular time I can think of where I, I heard a sermon that was not the best sermon. And I remember talking to someone afterwards, uh, someone you know, very uh, mature uh, Christian who'd been around for a while, and they talked about something that they had drawn out of that sermon. And I was convicted by the fact that in that moment, I was so focused on the problems in the sermon, which yes, the sermon did have a lot of weaknesses that that then led to me missing the opportunity to hear what God may have been trying to communicate to me through the sermon. And this other person, who was more mature, recognized. They, they had ears to hear there. And if you, if you talked with them privately, I'm sure they would have said, yes, there were a lot of problems with that sermon. But they had ears to hear that there was nourishment that was going on. And they were willing to hear and receive that despite all the other, other shortcomings. That's, the, that's this attitude of coming as a pupil to learn in Christ's church, as opposed to coming in as just a critic. I mean, Screwtape says, there is hardly any sermon or any book which may not be dangerous to us if it is received in this temper. Now, you can have a... I mean, and pastors, often we talk about this too. It's often the sermons that we thought were the worst that the Spirit of God uses to make the greatest impact in people. Because it's not about us, it's about Him in the end. And so anything could be used by the Spirit of God and also just the responsibility on the part of the hearer to, to come in humility, to 
to receive spiritual nourishment and strength from it. But what is it that the enemy wants? The enemy wants the, the enemy wants the patient to come as a critic, to go in not thinking about what is it that God's trying to work on me, what is it that God's trying to uh, convict me about or encourage me in or you know, build me up in any way. He wants us to come as critics, to tear down, to be dissatisfied, and, oh, this, is a, this isn't a, a great church. I need to go somewhere else. I mean, I remember another example as well from my own life. There was a time when I just was extremely busy, not getting a lot of sleep, and uh, you know, I just wasn't getting a lot out of the sermons. And uh, Then I realized after getting some sleep and being able to stay awake better in church that, wow, my preacher is actually really good. Problem wasn't that his sermons weren't good. The problem that I was not able to listen well. Uh, so we need to, to have that, uh, that right spirit. Now, uh, Screwtape then goes on to talk about, you know, yes, there are weak churches and, and some of the characteristics of weak churches to try to encourage this patient towards. Uh, the first one, you've got a, a pastor who never challenges. He just kind of waters everything down because um, he views it as, you know, he needs to dumb it down to these people, or um, these people can be ornery, and so he's just going to make it as simple as possible to cause the least offense possible. And uh, what happens in the end is he ends up shocking his parishioners with his unbelief, as opposed to uh, uh, him being shocked by their unbelief of what he's preaching. And that's very common in a church today, to just kind of water everything down so as not to offend people. And then we're offended at these pastors because... How in the world can you be a pastor and say those things that you say? Whereas on the other side, you've got a, a minister um, who his sermons are, you know, no one knows what he believes because every sermon is uh, basically just intended to offend people. Um, the man cannot bring himself to preach anything which is not calculated to shock, grieve, puzzle, or humiliate his parents and their friends. I mean, and we've, we've seen this in even, well, somewhat Reformed churches um, or quasi-Reformed churches have had pastors like this. But the pastor's as much a shock jock as anything else. Neither of those are, are good. And he goes on, I mean, Screwtape goes on to talk about one of the things that these churches uh, have in common, um, which is good, is that they are both party churches. Now, this is something we've talked about in, in previous letters, the idea of factions or parties within, within churches um, that you want that, the particular issue you get hung up on is more important than everything else. And your Christianity starts to become defined by that particular, uh, that particular issue. And both these, uh, these churches nearby this guy, the screw tapes are like, these are what those churches are like. They are party churches. It would be a good thing if this guy started uh, to go to your churches. He says, if your patient can't be kept out of the church, he ought at least to be violently attached to some party within it. And he's not necessarily just talking about like doctrinal issues. He actually wants us to be lukewarm about doctrine. Party issues is when you start to make the non-essentials or the minor things the major things. He, uh, he uses the example, you know, the real fun is working up hatred between those who say Mass and those who say Holy Communion, when neither party could possibly state the difference between, say, Hooker's Doctrine, and Thomas Aquinas's in any form which would hold water for, for five minutes. Now, we'll have a, 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 you know, we've got a little bit of a critique here because uh, 
there are important reasons why we don't say mass and we're not Roman Catholic and, and things like that. But uh, what he's getting at here is the idea of just difference in terminology. You know, there are Protestants that will use, I mean, we talk about, you know, communion, Lord's Supper, Eucharist, you know, you can use all of those in an okay way. And you don't have to, you know, that doesn't have to be the big deal there. Um, he was on the talk about, you know, we have quite removed from men's minds what the pestilent fellow Paul used to teach about food and other essentials, namely that the human without scruples should always give in to the human with scruples. And this is uh, talking about you know, Romans uh, 14 and uh, in loving each other and bearing with each other and, and uh, being willing to consider the, the weaker brother. And I absolutely love the way that Lewis ends this letter. Because I think this is a this is a goal that we should have as a church. Um, he talks about without that variety of usage within the Church of England, uh, might have become um, it might have become a positive hotbed of charity and humility. That's what the church is supposed to be like. I love that phrase. A, we should be a positive hotbed of charity and humility. That willingness to to love each other to not be quick to take offense at each other, to have the humility to be willing to, um, to repent, to say that we're sorry, to, uh, to recognize that um, you know, we're willing to view ourselves lowly for the sake of our brother. I mean, this is entirely what 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about. Love bears all things. Love does not insist on its own way. It does not keep a record of wrongs. It considers the other person as more important than themselves. This is what we're supposed to be as a church. A group that is a positive hotbed of charity and humility. We don't want to be a church that's watered down. We don't want to be a church that's just trying to offend and shock people. We're not trying to be party churches. We're being... We're trying to be a church that is faithful to the teaching of Christ with charity and humility. Any uh, comments or questions about anything we've talked about? That's the end of of letter 16. Yes? I don't remember if it's this chapter, but I think it relates to this chapter. And I remember when we read this book, it seemed very, very critical of what the American system of, you know, he was arguing strongly for... uh, Parishes, right? Uh, and almost saying, oh, one way to get them, you know, screw tape, or to get us is to have a situation where we're free to go wherever we want. Mm, right. At the time, I remember it seemed kind of overstated. Um, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on Is that this chapter? Or is it it's, uh, I don't remember him talking about that um, quite in that way. Um, though, uh, and, and for those on online, you know the, the question. Um, uh, the question is, you know, does uh, there's there's memory of him talking kind of negatively about the American ability to just kind of go up everywhere, as opposed to like you know Church of England, where you've got your local parish and you're you're more limited and you can't just like hop around per se. I mean, some of those ideas are definitely in here, um, but I don't remember them being said in that in that explicit way. Um, but there is. There is, how to put it, there is something to be said about 
how far do I want to go down this rabbit hole? Um, there, there is something to be said about just kind of the divorce of community that we have in America. Um, that you know, people, and I'm not criticizing anyone who does this, but we, I think we can recognize it's not ideal when you have to drive 45 minutes or an hour to church. There, there's a, there's a, an inability to, or there's a, a difficulty in having community when you have to drive that far. And, you know, one of the blessings we have is that we can travel because of automobiles and things like that, but it's, you know, one of the side effects of our, our, uh, our time period with all those, with how you know, transitory uh, our society is, is you lose the ability to have community and relationships and that, that localness of it. Um, that's strange historically in terms of just human interactions. Um, and so that connects to, well, we can just go anywhere we want. If we don't like a restaurant, we can go to another restaurant. If we don't like a grocery store, we can go to another grocery store. If we don't like a church, we can go to another church. And, uh, and that the, the lack of community, um, as we have less community, it also makes it more difficult. We, we don't learn how to be able to live with people that we don't like. We don't have to interact with our neighbors if we don't want to. Humani- you know, through the history of humanity, that's not normal. You couldn't just avoid your neighbors. Uh, more so, at some point, you'd probably be dependent on your neighbors for life. Uh, in the sense of like, you know, you might have to save their lives, they might have to save your lives. Um, but we now live in an isolated society where we don't have to, to deal with those things. And so now in the church, the church kind of takes on those characteristics where, where, where we, it's easy to become a club as opposed to like a unified community. Because um, you can just avoid those things. So I'm kind of taking this down a, a little bit of a, a rabbit trail. But um, does that make sense, what I'm saying there? Are there any questions on that? Um, yeah, I think you, I mean, if you think about it, you know, even as you mentioned this, the whole idea of a party spirit, right? I mean, we, our churches tend to be very homogeneous. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's not a lot of diversity of social status or, or thinking, you know. And, um, it can be, yeah. Any other? Yes, Randy. Let me give you an example of a pastor shocking and offending. <laughs> a question on, for Zoom is how? what is an example of a pastor shocking or offending his congregation? Um, I, I have specific examples in mind. I'm trying to see if I can communicate them without, without it being obvious what I'm talking about. <laughs> um. An example would be um, an example would be a pastor preaching Song of Solomon in a very over the top literal way that would make ears burn. Yeah. So that's probably. For those, if you know, you know. I'll, I'll leave it like that. Um, if someone else has an example, uh, you know, without naming names, <laughs> you throw it out there. But, uh, but yeah, that that that's an example I know of. So, but Sam, I think you had your.
very cognizant of God's working with us in the present. Yeah. That's very clear here. And I want to make your assessment. This was written during the early days, probably in the early 1940s. Yeah, 41. Mm-hmm. It's been a while, but yeah. It's constantly, it's an unfallen world. There's an Adam and Eve figure there. And there's some human interaction from birth. There's bad guys and there's a good guy. But all of the humans, the good one and the bad guys, are looked at with astonishment by the unfallen human people because the humans from birth are consumed with things that have nothing to do with the present and the blessings that mm. God is bestowing on them in the present. And one of the, uh, the phrases here in page 76 is the present is all lit up with eternal rays that God is showering in the blessings right now. Um, and it, that's the whole theme of Carolina. Yeah, yeah. So uh, for those on Zoom, uh, Sam's bringing out that, uh, you know, th- that theme of chapter 15 of, you know, enjoying and living in the, the, the gifts that God gives us in the present. Specifically, you know, the kind of that phrase, the present is all lit up with eternal rays. Um, that that's really the theme of Lewis's, um, I think that's the second one in the space trilogy, Paralandra. Um, th- that whole book is kind of building off some of these themes because you've got uh, an unfallen world with kind of an Adam figure and an Eve figure interacting with, um, you know, a couple people from Earth, and they're shocked at, you know, how the people at Earth live, just completely unaware of the present and just the enjoying of the gifts that God uh, gives in the present. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. Is there another hand over? Okay. Any other uh, thoughts, comments? Questions? The last sentence in the 15 is why should I jump Yeah. Yep. Yeah, Sue's bringing out the last sentence of uh, letter 15 is why should the creature be happy? I mean, that's Satan doesn't want us to be happy. He doesn't want us to. I mean, you know, the, the first catechism question is, you know, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You know, enjoying God's, like, that's part of what we were created for. And to experience that joy and happiness of relationship with God. And, uh, and Satan doesn't want any of that. Nothing, nothing that communicates happiness or actual real joy or real pleasure or real enjoying of God or his creation or anything. He doesn't want any of that. No, take away all the happiness you can. Um, yeah. Yes, that's what keeps us, um, I should say, that's what keeps a lot of people focused on the present because this is never good enough. Mm-hmm. We always want more. Yep. We want something better. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Randy's bringing out, and that's why people are just constantly, they're constantly pursuing things. And, uh, and I think that connects with some things that screw tape kind of sprinkles in here and there that, you know, they, you know, they, they deceive us into thinking these things are pleasures, but they're empty and Satan knows they're empty, but we don't. And so we just keep going after them and going after them. And, you know, you end up hopeless and just worn out and because you, you keep, you think you're getting pleasure, but you're actually not, you're not getting the real thing. And, uh, because he doesn't want us to be happy. I, I mean, everything Satan says is a lie, and uh, he hates us. I mean, that's one of the things that should really come out to us from these letters. Now that I, I think about it, you know, Satan hates us. He does not want anything good for us. And I mean, ev- I mean, he comes as an angel of light. You know, he. I mean, C.S. Lewis uses that imagery of you know, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the offering of Turkish delight. You know. Uh, to buy Edmund's allegiance to, to, to betray um, his siblings and all this. You know, it's, it's that offering of something that appears delightful and pleasurable. It's just all empty and terrible and gross and nasty. And why? Because he hates us. He doesn't want us to have anything good. And that's what commercials are. Oh, yeah, commercials. Yep. Car, yep. It's about selling something. It's all empty. I mean, not those those aren't nice things, but the way they the way they 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 sell them, it's it's offering you something they can't actually get. So, all right, anything else before we uh, before we close tonight?